When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This episode of EcoChic is brought to you by Aspiration, the new way of swiping that lets you plant a tree every time you use your debit card. With Aspiration, you can ensure your deposits are free of harmful fossil fuel projects like oil drilling or pipelines. And you can choose to plant a tree with every purchase using just your spare change. Get up to $200 when you open an account at aspiration.com green. Learn more details when you sign up for a better world at aspiration.com green. Everything you do is making an impact in this world. This is not an elitist issue. This is a quality of life issue. How dare you? And I feel like it's my responsibility as a human being. So what? The world is at stake. You're listening to Eco Chic, a podcast about climate, sustainability, and eco-conscious lifestyles. What, like it's hard? Hello, hello. Welcome back to Eco Chic. My name is Laura Diaz, and it's so good to see you here today. I hope you are feeling good and energized. It is Earth Week. It is Fashion Revolution Week. It's National Park Week. A lot is going on, and it's usually my favorite month, April, and it's also the Eco Chic birthday. So April 10th was our three-year birthday of the podcast. Really exciting and such a milestone for me personally. But because so much happens in this month and I get so excited and the weather is finally nice again, I'm also always swamped. I have no idea how busy this month is going to be. And if there are any other sustainability professionals out there, my heart goes out to you. It's coming to a close soon. This is a really fabulous month to highlight all of the eco-conscious creators and sustainability professionals and climate policy officials that are working 24-7 all year round on making the climate crisis a thing of the past. So as you see all of these climate conscious capsule collections, any brands doing serious greenwashing campaigns, I hope you keep in mind that Earth Day should be every single day. And I am excited that you are here along for the journey. Welcome to the audience if you are new around here. If you've been here for a while, again, it's so good to have you. Keep coming back. And if you want to connect with me, if you enjoy this episode, you can find me on social at Podcast. And you can rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Helps me out a lot. You can follow along on Spotify. And I look forward to continuing to make Earth Day every day right with you. Today we are speaking with Emma Rose Cohen, the CEO and founder of Final, the creators of the Final Straw, the world's first reusable collapsible straw that raised nearly $2 million on Kickstarter. A few years ago in 2018, Final and the Final Straw really took the internet by storm, and I feel like everyone I ever knew had one of their collapsible straws, 
And it really changed the way that we started thinking about not just the straw-free conversation, but also what it means to be sustainable on the go, to really market sustainability to the masses. And I am so, so excited to dive deep with Emma about how that was possible, that kind of serious impact. Prior to launching Final, Emma earned her BS in neuroscience from UC Santa Barbara and received a master's degree from Harvard in environmental management and sustainability. She spent four years afterwards working in the waste minimization department at Los Alamos National Laboratory. So cool. During college and over the last 10 years or so, Emma mentions that her passion for sustainability, along with some of her college friends, motivated her to start a nonprofit called Save the Mermaids with a mission to educate children about the harmful effects of single-use plastics. It started from a really wholesome place of friends doing beach cleanups and really, really grew, and Emma gets into that with us. Since 2018, Emma has grown Final from a one-product company to an entire line of convenient, sustainable alternatives. Of their cutlery, my personal favorite is the Final Spork because it makes it so easy to just always have a reusable cutlery item in my bag. When I was in school, I kept one in my backpack. I really like them for camping. A really cool, expansive product line of sexy, sustainable alternatives. Emma also has a really fabulous TED Talk called The End of the Plastic Pandemic that I encourage y'all to go and check out. She does a lot of really amazing public speaking work, which is one of the reasons I was so excited to speak with her. I've admired her from afar for a really long time, and I encourage you to dive a little bit deeper into her public appearances and her education. Because beyond the product line, Emma does a lot of education, a lot of outreach, and she really makes it a point to emphasize that It's not just about cutting out straws. There's a bigger problem here that we need to tackle, a plastic pollution problem, a single-use problem, and what it means to be an American consumer. Waste is just a design flaw, according to Emma. I think that's what I'm going to title this episode because it just sounds so, so powerful. Like I said, we talk about the Kickstarter campaign, the expansion of her line of final, what it means to grow a business and do it in a truly sustainable way, and what it means to even have a sustainable business. She gives her thoughts on the plastic crisis. We have this really wonderful back and forth. I think that Emma is probably the realest person that I've spoken to in a really long time, and I don't mean to diminish any of my other conversations, but Emma is just so upfront with her feelings and her concerns. She's so well-spoken. She's so eloquent. And she has no problem calling out BS where she sees it. So also just a fair warning, there's a couple of moments of adult language, let's say. So if you're in the car with young kids, just FYI, she's just so big picture. And I am really, really thankful for the opportunity to learn from her and to pick her brain a little bit. Because again, I really respect her and the education portion of all of the work that she does. So we get into a lot. We even get into plastic alternatives, some of the issues we see with waste in America and the recycling economy. Oh my God, this was kind of the dream episode for me because it got into a lot of the issues that turned me into an environmentalist and an environmental advocate. So I appreciate the opportunity to share this conversation with you. I think you're going to really enjoy it. It feels fun and wholesome while still fiery. There's something really special about this conversation and I think you're going to really enjoy it. So, like I said, if you enjoyed this talk, rate and review the show, Apple Podcasts, follow along on Spotify. Apple Podcasts, heads up, is doing some sort of 
conversion internally this week. So if a show is not popping up for you, hopefully it will be there the following day. I think they're doing the movement little by little from their internal software. Not that it probably matters to you, but just as an FYI, you can always find me on Spotify. You can always find me on social. I'm always on Clubhouse these days. All of my links are in the show notes. And with that, let's get into today's conversation with Emma Rose Cohen, CEO and founder of Final. Enjoy. Well, Emma, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me, Laura. I first want to open up actually asking you to go way, way back, set the scene for me a little bit for your first introduction to sustainability, because I know that you are pretty well-versed and you were already in this space before final really came to be. What was your experience like? Let's go even further back, like childhood. Were you an outdoorsy child? What was your experience like just with nature? What was that like for you? Mm, Okay. So childhood, I grew up in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And yeah, I I was obsessed with horses. I was one of those crazy horse girls that people warn you about. And um, the horse calendars plastered all over my wall, like wallpaper. Um, But you know, my parents weren't particularly into sustainability, but they are very practical. And one of my earliest memories is one time I didn't finish my dinner and my dad like found a national geographic or something with starving children in it. And he was like, this is why you need to eat your food. See these kids, they don't have food and you are privileged to have food. And like, that was burned into my mind forever. And so I think that's really where my obsession with waste came from. And, and this idea that nothing should be wasted and that everything is a valuable resource. Wow. Okay. First of all, that's a lot as a child, I have to imagine that's something that does get burned into your memory. And when you start thinking about waste, was that something that you grew up like hyper-focused on? Did you become someone who became really obsessed with the zero waste lifestyle? Did you, uh, did you become a mason jar trash person? Like how did the waste uh, obsession, I suppose, manifest throughout your life? Yeah. So no, I mean, I remember that moment with my dad and I remember, you know, never wasting food since then, but it, it didn't quite translate until college. I went to University of California at Santa Barbara and so spent a lot of time on the beach and my girlfriends and I would dress up like mermaids and do beach cleanups and just like realize that, you know, my, my behavior and, and my purpose in college weren't quite aligned because I was there, you know, drinking a lot, using the red solo cups and like probably use 10 in a night. And, and yet like, here I am also trying to you know, get an education and make a positive contribution in the world. So there was kind of this like disparity between my actions and my intention. And so that kind of started to weigh on me. And, and as a result, my girlfriends and I ended up starting a nonprofit called Save the Mermaids, where we would dress up like mermaids and do beach cleanups and go to city council meetings. And we were really active in the single use plastic bag ban for Santa Barbara. And it was really in doing that work that I found my passion at UCSB. I was studying neuroscience. I was like going pre-med. And then I realized like, I don't want to work in a hospital. I want to, this is what I want to do. I love this. This fires me up. This fuels the light inside of me. And, and so this is my calling. And, but I didn't really know how that was going to manifest. And 
And so to your question around being a zero waste um, jar trash person, absolutely not. I think that movement is unrealistic, unattainable, and idealistic, and that it sets a standard that is almost impossible for any of us to accomplish. And therefore, you know, if you've ever tried, like, you know, have you ever like tried like a, you know, very intense, I don't know, like athletic goal without like training. And so you like, yes, completely fail. And then you're like, well, screw it. I'm so far from accomplishing my goal. I'm not even going to try. Like, that's how I feel about the jar. And though I think it's an interesting exercise for everyone to do in order to see how much trash you produce, because like none of us, very, very few of us have a real concept on how much trash we throw away on a daily basis. Cause we just throw it away and then it goes away though. There is no way, but yeah, that's kind of my thoughts on the, the trash jar. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that it's a nice thing to strive for, but it's incredibly unattainable and it really did not work for me when I thought that I had to be really overhauling my life. So it didn't make sense for me, but things that did start making sense for me were thinking about things like straws and saying, okay, if I can refuse a straw, I'm going to become a whole lot more conscious of all the other things coming into my life. So now I want you to fast forward a little bit for me and talk to me about final, because I think that for me as an outsider, learning about you and learning about the brand, one of the most interesting things for me is that you launched a very successful crowdsourcing campaign with a prototype, with an idea, without actual product. So tell me all about that. Like how, how was that able to be as successful as it was? Well, one of my life mottos is fake it till you make it. So um, that's basically what the campaign was. I had no clue what I was doing, no experience doing it. And yet I had an idea and I thought that it was solving a problem for people. And so, you know, the Kickstarter was an attempt to see like, is this something people actually care about and are interested in? And when I clicked the go button at like 1 a.m. on April 19th, after three months of just like head down, you know, obsessive work building the campaign, I I was like, I thought the the best that the campaign was going to do was $70,000. And, you know, we did that in like the first day. So definitely was not expecting that um, at all. How did you immediately launch? Because that's pretty shocking to go from having no product to suddenly having, what was it? $2 million that you were yeah. ultimately able to raise. Absolutely yeah, so- nuts, I have to say, congratulations, <laughs> but absolutely yeah, thank bananas. You. You know, I attribute the success to two things, hard work and timing. Um, Timing is the number one indicator of success of any business. Anyone that tells you it's anything else, I'm sorry, it's not, it's timing. You know, had we launched Final Straw six months earlier, I don't think the campaign would have even funded because, you know, straws weren't in the news. It wasn't something people were really talking about, but we just happened to launch right when you know, straws were dominating headlines. So the way I launched the campaign was kind of two different strategies that, you know, I can go deep into, or people can just go read the two articles written by Tim Ferriss that are on his blog. One is about building a email list. And the other one is about creating a successful crowdfunding campaign. And literally I just followed the advice on those two things to a T and that was kind of it. Beyond what was advised there, I did one other sneaky little thing, 
which was setting up Google News Alerts for plastic straw. So I was collecting the information of every reporter that was writing about plastic straws for three months prior to the campaign. And then right before the campaign launched, I emailed every single one of those people, about 700 in total, and was like, hey, I saw your article about plastic straws. Like, guess what? We fixed it. But ah, so exciting. Got zero responses. Um, so I was like, oh, dang it. And then like, I think a week and a half before the campaign went live, I got one response from BuzzFeed. And they were like, this seems super cool. We'd love to do a story on it. And I was like, oh. So it was a combination of doing all of the things in those articles, as well as you know creating this contact with BuzzFeed that led to the virality of the campaign and the kind of immediate um, explosive success. I am so excited for warmer weather. I cannot wait to be outside, hiking, enjoying the outdoors, and still thinking about my conscious consumerism, making sure that my personal choices aren't indirectly harming the environment. And I've been thinking a lot about how I am banking. Did you know that big banks invested more than $575 billion of our money last year in the fossil fuel industry? leading to harmful projects like oil drilling that we know directly impact global warming and climate change. That's why I'm so excited I found Aspiration. Aspiration is a new bank that aligns with my values. Aspiration will never use your money to fund fossil fuels. With Aspiration, you can choose to plant a tree with every purchase using your spare change. You can get up to 10% cash back at environmentally friendly partners and access up to 20 times the interest of a traditional bank. Pay zero fees at over 55,000 ATMs. That's one of my favorite parts. And good news, for a limited time, Aspiration is offering our listeners up to $200 when you open an account at aspiration.com green. Learn more details when you sign up for a better world at aspiration.com green. Now back to the show. And I have to think also how interesting it is that you're so transparent in that the resources were already available for you. There were two articles on the Tim Ferriss website and you knew to set up Google alerts. Like, I hate to say that you didn't do anything like out of the ordinary, but you were smart. Like you were really good at using the resources that you already had and making it work. A hundred percent. I think, you know, I am living proof that anyone can start a company without having any prior knowledge you know, no business experience. And yeah, I've definitely made a ton of mistakes, but all the resources are out there. And it's like, you know, there's no point in reinventing the wheel. Let's do what others have done, build on it and learn from, from those creations so that, you know, you're not doing unnecessary work trying to conceptualize how to make something successful happen. And yes, you have to sort through all the bullshit because there's a lot of that on the internet, but also there's you know, everything you can learn anything on university of YouTube. I'm currently learning how to like trade stocks and like read charts and all of that. And it's like, you don't have to go to school. Like it's just all there. Agreed. Agreed. And I also hold on. I want to go back one minute to say, you mentioned mistakes. I like that you're transparent about that because again, if you don't have a business degree. It's very easy to get caught up in like wanting to do everything perfectly. And am I the right person for the job and doubting yourself and being able to say like, the mistakes that I made made me better and they grew the brand and I got to where I am because of that. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit about early challenges. Like tell me, maybe not even some, tell me about like perhaps the most uh, educational mistake that you made 
early in the business? Oh man, there's so many. Um, you know, I think it's funny because people are like, oh, like you had such amazing success right off the bat, which is like incredible and so grateful for that. But it comes with, you know, the pressures of running a multi-million dollar business overnight. And like when you have that much money in your bank account, that means you can make way bigger mistakes than if you don't. So let's see. I'd say my biggest mistake overall is hiring, not vetting people correctly, um, not, you know, finding the right people for the job. I think hiring is the most challenging thing in building a company. You know, it's really hard because I believe that every person, you know, is, is good, inherently good. And I, I still believe that, but it doesn't mean that just because someone's good, they're good for the job. And so, yeah, a lot of big mistakes in hiring are, we call it strawmageddon when we had hired someone to do operations and like, I mean, her head was so far up her butt that she did not realize that like none of like 30,000 orders weren't going to go out like they were supposed to. And so I didn't find this until find this out until the day the orders are supposed to all have been shipped. And it's like 30,000 orders still haven't gone out. We're right backed up to holidays. We're getting thousands of emails a day from angry customers that we ruined Christmas, that, you know, they're, they're going to boycott us, that we're a scam, like all of this crazy shit, because I trusted this one person to do their job. Um, and so I think that, you know, the learning lesson there is first off, do a trial basis with people, um, make sure that they're doing their job, make sure that they, that if you confront them with questions, they don't get defensive. That was like such a big one. Cause I'd ask her questions all the time. She'd be like, why are you micromanaging me? I'm like, I'm just trying to understand what's going on. And so if, if someone's getting defensive because you're asking them questions, probably cause they're not doing their job. Um, otherwise if they're doing their job, they're just going to answer the questions. Um, and then lastly, you know, just weekly reporting. Um, so making sure that people are reporting the things to you that, that you need to see to ensure that progress has been made and, and that reporting, if I back up a little bit ties to goals. So as soon as you bring someone on, they should be setting goals for themselves on a one month, three month, six month, one year basis, and then tracking the progress to those goals. It sounds like you had a pretty serious learning curve coming into <laughs> Huge. business. I mean, I think I messed up every possible thing I could have, but it's like, you know, the, the momentum behind the product was just so great that like, I luckily didn't completely destroy everything, but yeah, huge, huge learning curve. Yeah. Well, it's good that you recognize the momentum behind the product at this point being what's driving you in these early stages of challenges of running a brand, of running a business, of, of bringing reusable straws to the forefront. Quite frankly, there, there really wasn't any major label of reusable products the way that Final has been able to do it at the time. So I also have to think that this momentum behind the product had to push you to create more products. At this point, you're making straws and evolving the product line must have been its own challenge. What do you do next? How do you figure out what people want? Um, is it about the consumers? Is it about like what the supply chain can handle? Talk to me about like that whole expansion phase. Mm, yeah. For me, the next steps were always pretty clear just because I am our customer. Like I am always looking for things to help 
make my life more convenient in, in reducing plastic waste. So, it, you know, there's just all of this low hanging fruit that I still am, am looking at things to solve. So the, the kind of obvious next step for me was cutlery. And um, I'm so proud of what we've created. Our final fork and final spork are my favorite products that we have. Um, I use them all the time. Personally, I'm not really a straw user. Um, I stopped using straws a very long time ago and, and just never really went back. And somehow now I own a straw company. But I think the evolution of the product line is really like, what are common things that people are using on a regular basis that are single use plastic that, that don't have great alternatives out there. I'm not trying to just sell products. Like I'll never sell, you know, just a regular stainless steel straw, which we could have made millions of dollars on because, you know, we already have people on our website checking out. They obviously like straws. Maybe they want one for home, but like, that to me feels like I'm not actually contributing to innovation, to pushing the needle, to doing something different. And, and that's really where my passion is, is like, how can I reinvent things to make it easier, convenient, and super fun and sexy to reduce waste? I have to say, obviously, you are a very educated person. You can hear it in the way that you speak. And just knowing you, again, like via internet and seeing the engagements that you do, you do so much work in education and pushing the needle because it, it isn't really about straws. And you're right in saying that there's more to this plastic pollution crisis than straws. And I think the other interesting thing is the economic push that we've seen in the last few years. We see these big businesses developing sustainability divisions and sustainability groups where there previously was none. You think about sustainability directors of major companies and how, uh, how performative are these offices versus how much are they actually doing and how are we looking at supply chains and things like that. And, and there's this push for big business to get on board with sustainability because whether or not they're being mandated, the customers are asking for it. It's not even about the right thing to do anymore. It's like, you have to do it. It's this or nothing. Absolutely. How do you feel about that, um, I guess, broader corporate America sustainability push right now? I feel a lot of ways about it. First off, I think it's great. I think that everyone needs to have their eyes on sustainability and be pushing towards that. I think it's really challenging to bake in sustainability as an add-on. So all of these companies that, you know, were established without any kind of concept of sustainability and are now trying to add it in, it's almost like, you know, trying to stick a an arm in the like ear hole of Mr. Potato Head. Like it's just, it doesn't quite fit. You know, that being said, I think progress over perfection any day. And, and though there is absolutely a lot of greenwashing out there, you know, the fact that, that these companies are even talking about it, I think is the first step. And then, you know, it's, it's like, we, we have to be making progress. We have to be holding companies accountable for their footprint and, and for what they're effects are on the environment. So, you know, it, it, it ranges company to company. Do I think that Coca-Cola actually cares about sustainability? No, absolutely not. Um, they're the number one plastic polluter in the world. Um, please stop buying their products. Um, and, and yet they do, you know, a ton in 
sustainability. And, and, you know, there are others that would completely disagree with me and say that they are making a ton of progress. And I think it's tough. It's like, do we commend, you know, these companies that are making these tiny, minute changes and give them a nice little pat on the back? Or do we say like, Hey, that's bullshit. You have to do way more. Um, and I'm kind of more on the other end of like, like, yeah, I see you, I see you doing that, but it's not enough. And, and in order to like really set a standard and you have to be, you know, setting aggressive goals and not this like 2050 pie in the sky, like, you know, goal that's so far out. That's it's just not acceptable. We have to be setting way more aggressive goals. Absolutely agree with you. And I want to talk about these aggressive goals because when you are approached by other business owners. I have to imagine that you are interacting on some level with other big players in the industry. How are you encouraging those goals to be set? Like, what does it mean to be a truly sustainable company in the year of 2021? That's a big question. Um, You know, (laughs) there's nothing really truly sustainable besides going and living in the mountains and like eating dirt. If we are consumers in a society where we are using things, um, it is, is not super sustainable. So I think that, you know, first off transparency is, is probably one of the biggest things there, like, you know, Patagonia paving the way for all companies to see like the work that they're doing. And it's like, you know, they're making massive strides in sustainability, but they're still selling, you know, synthetic based clothing that sheds microfibers but they're transparent about that. You know, it's, it's really hard. Like my best example is if you buy an organic cotton reusable bag, which seems like the the right choice, the most sustainable choice, you have to reuse it 273 times to equal the environmental impact of one single use plastic bag. So while, you know, this, this item is designed to be more sustainable, it is inherently worse for the environment unless you hit that break-even point of usage and, and actually don't use the single-use plastic bags. So I think that it's it's a really complicated um, and, and challenging situation to be in because everything has a trade-off. Um, every material, you know, if, if like, you know, we've had plenty of people say like, why, instead of using recycled plastic for your cases, why don't you guys use wood or bamboo? And it's like, well, okay, here's why bamboo uses a lot more energy. It breaks a lot faster. You know, there's, you have to use a chemical sealant on it. So there's all of these different trade-offs that you have to look at, um, which makes giving the advice of like how to be more sustainable, really complicated. But I think that, you know, step one to kind of close my rant out is awareness. Step two is transparency and step three is education. And then step four is action. So like identifying areas of the business that can be more sustainable and then taking those steps to integrate that into the company and, and making sustainability part of the DNA so that it's not just this like, you know, weird add on of like, oh yeah, we're trying to be sustainable. It's like, no, this is now part of the foundation and the mission of who we are and and why we operate. And then, you know, making decisions from that core. I appreciate the rant. I have to say, I think that there's something about 
the education piece that I really want to unpack with you a little bit more, because I know that you're quite outspoken about, um, especially around the presidential election, when we're talking about what is the role of sustainability and climate action and what is the role of brands to educate consumers and uh, paying a bit of a green premium for a reusable product when maybe you don't reach that 273 usage break even point. Like, what does that mean from the brand perspective? So as an advocate, but also as a business owner, where does the education come in for you? Do you feel like it's your role to educate the world on climate change and sustainability? And is it really about the straws? And um, I feel like I don't even have a question for you. I just want to know how you do it. Like, how do you teach people all this? Memes. (laughs) Um. Yeah, I think that, you know, that's how I started the final straw Instagram. That's how I grew our following to, you know, I think I got it up to like 10,000 people before we launched on Kickstarter, um, relatable content that has an aspect of humor that sends a message while not being, you know, demeaning or degrading. Um, I think that's the best way to educate. And I'm obsessed with memes, you know, forever. I, (laughs) literally just started a crypto meme account with my friends. So like, got to I'm just ha- a little off the deep end on memes. But I think that you have to start off with simple information. And that's why it is really hard to educate about sustainability, because like, it is pretty complicated. And there there are all of these trade offs. And in general, people want to know, like, x is better than y, or, you know, what choice should I make? And I'm like, well, it depends on like, the weather and like your astrological sign and like, I mean, yeah, just kidding. But <laughs> I think, um, is it my job to, to educate people? Yeah. And I think I've learned a lot about how to do it in a better way. I used to be pretty aggressive about it and, you know, I'll never forget this one time my friend came over and he like brought over some beers and he like took his coat off. And this like plastic bag fell from inside his coat. So he was like trying to hide that he got a plastic bag because he knew I'd yell at him. But, and I was like, wow, I've, I've turned into the plastic police. And so is it better to, for me to like be so aggressive in pushing this agenda or can I do it when I step more into my feminine with an open heart and, and with love and compassion. And so that's, you know, a shift that I've been working on making in, in telling this, it's not like you're right, you're wrong. It's like, Hey, here are some facts. Here's some alternatives. You're a smart person. So you make the decision. I always say that if you have critical thinking skills, like you can understand climate change and you can understand your basic role in whatever vacuum you're living in. And it's not really a matter of like understanding the science or explaining, you know, the geological background of all of this to people. It's about getting them to care, getting them to pay attention to you. And again, making it part of that like DNA of the conversation and making sure that we're not speaking about this in these, again, shouting into these voids and relating to people and not being demeaning. And I had a similar kind of plastic police realization not too long ago. And I didn't really think it was on me. And I feel like, you know, not to, not to blame anyone else for my uh, perhaps aggression on the plastic problem. But um, pre COVID, I remember going to a bar and I had a girlfriend and she was just like, she got a straw in her drink. Cause it was like an aggressively large jar of something. And she was like, Oh, I'm so sorry. But like, I really need a straw to drink out of this. And I was like, first of all, live your life. Like, I don't care. It's, 
I'm glad that you're thinking about the straw. I'm glad that you feel a little bad about the straw and you're saying, okay, like here's my one piece of plastic that I'm taking in and I'm going to do better next time and whatever. And I guess it goes back to also what you were saying that the straw is not really the root of the problem. It's about getting people to think about the straw and getting people to talk about plastic and pollution. And, and there's also this kind of guilt that a lot of people associate with acquiring plastic. And especially during COVID, I've certainly acquired more plastic than I would have ever wanted to. Take out containers and disposable masks. And, and how much can I really, how much can I really like cut out during this time? I think I've been forced to think more deeply about my values and where I can lend a hand in the climate crisis. So how is, how do you feel like COVID has impacted the plastic conversation? I bet you're getting a lot of that now. What do I do with my takeout containers? What do I do with uh, all of the disposable things that I need? Yeah, totally. I mean, I think just quickly back to your story with your friend, like my, I'm like, why are you apologizing to me? You know, cause I get that all the time. And like, people are apologizing to me. I'm like, don't apologize to me, apologize to your future children. And then they're like, oh, burn. Um, <laughs> but, you know, to the other side of that, I was having a conversation with a friend and she was like, honestly, like I remember once coming home and she she'd put, it was my old roommate. She'd put all of the groceries in plastic and I started crying and I don't remember this at all, but she was like, your reaction to that was burned so deep into my mind. So like, though being the plastic police is not ideal, like being the person that like your friends and the people around you and in your community want to do better for is okay. And I'm okay with that. COVID. Oh yeah. I mean, I think every single person's plastic consumption has gone up in COVID. It's been really challenging, but it's forced me to be more creative with my solutions. Um, it's, it's also meant that I've developed deeper relationships with a lot of my local businesses. So I have multiple restaurants that I frequent here in Santa Fe that let me bring in my own containers. And so that's awesome. Like <laughs> I've never had someone say no when I asked to bring my own to-go containers in. And, you know, yes, it takes a little more time because I go there, I bring the container and make the order, but it's like, we all have stuff on our phones that we can do. I, you know, respond to emails or like listen to an audio book or just kind of go on a walk around, you know, where the restaurant is. So I'm hoping that we're kind of pulling out of that now. You know, we certainly saw a, a big decrease in sales, I think, as a result of both people not traveling and people's focus is being more on personal health than environmental health. And so, you know, at first we were seeing these articles back in, you know, April of 2020 that like smog was clearing and, and dolphins were going back into bays because we were all grounded in, in one place. But then we all started to see, you know, single use plastic from takeout skyrocket. So I think there's been net positive and net negative effects. Um, one of the other net positive effects being that I think a lot more people have established a deeper connection with nature and the outdoors. And um, we saw bikes, uh, mountain bikes have been sold out for two years almost, or I guess a year and a half, because that's how long it's been. But, you know, a lot more people getting into the outdoors because they couldn't rely on interactions in cities and houses. And so that's a beautiful, amazing thing in order for people to want to save and protect our beautiful planet, they need to feel connected to it. And so I think that is one of the, the great outcomes of COVID. I totally agree. I totally agree. It's so nice to see people 
even experiencing the national park system for the first time. I think that uh, there's a lot of privilege around being able to go to national parks, but for a lot of people, it was not even like a vacation option that they would have thought of previously. So I'm really excited to see people come out of this with a deeper appreciation for public lands, especially in the Southwest. I think there's a lot of conversation to be had about protecting public lands and making them accessible. And on the flip side of that, I want to talk to you about your hopes and dreams as a very educated person in the plastic space when it comes to plastic innovation. Do you see this push away from plastics, away from single-use plastics from the consumer level to be influencing the plastic supply chain at all? Mm -hmm. Do you see any like upcoming technologies that you're really excited about? Or do you have any like hopes and dreams for biodegradable plastic one day? What, what are your thoughts on that? Wow, that's such a good question. Okay, so I have quite a few thoughts on this. First off, yes, there's absolutely a lot of innovation, especially in the seaweed and algae space around plastics that are exciting. Um, the, you know, the challenge and why I'm not kind of like doing cartwheels over here in celebration is that we subsidize the oil and plastics industry by $5.2 trillion every year. So we are making plastic artificially inexpensive with these subsidies. So it's, it's really hard for these other technologies to compete on a price standpoint with plastic as the current structure is. So what that means is we need legislation and policy that changes um, you know, where these subsidies are going and then way more support for these alternative plastic technologies. The other kind of uh, barrier there is compostability and biodegradability. So let's say tomorrow we switched all single-use oil-based plastic to biodegradable. Well, we wouldn't have an outlet for it because there isn't any national composting system. So it's it's hard because it's like, do you put the cart with where the horse, you know, where are we, where are we positioning, you know, these changes? And I think ultimately, you know, there's a lot of businesses switching to biodegradable plastic. And, you know, what my experience has often been when I go to a restaurant and I ask for no straw, I'm told, well, it's okay. It's biodegradable. And then, you know, all my friends look at me like, oh my God, is she about to make a scene? And I'm like, only a small one. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, I just try and, and obviously it's not on the server or anything there, but I'm curious. So I ask, is there, you know, do you guys have a composting system? And they're like, no, it's like, well, okay. So if I use this biodegradable straw, what happens next? So yes, it's not made out of plastic and yes, you know, it's not going to, you know, get stuck up a sea turtle's nose potentially, but when it goes to a landfill, it's still surrounded by plastic. And when an organic compound is surrounded by plastic and goes to a landfill to biodegrade, it anaerobically digests, which means that there's no oxygen present because it's in this little like plastic vortex and, and therefore produces greenhouse gases such as methane, which are anywhere from 40 to 80 times more potent than CO2. So ultimately, yes, these materials break down, but if they're not going to the right place, like a composting system, um, they're actually creating more harm than good. So, you know, what do we do? Well, um, you know, I think the two solutions are policy and legislation and to push more innovation in the alternative plastic space 
And then second um, is, you know, establishing these composting systems uh, throughout the United States. And I mean, obviously throughout the world, but. Yeah, I think a lot about that compostable material issue and this sense that it kind of makes you feel better. I get a lot of compostable materials from especially like salad takeout places, places that want you to feel like they're healthy and clean and whatever. But if you're not composting it at the place, then what's the good of your compostable container? And just reminding people that there are takeaways to each of these things, that it doesn't happen in a vacuum. There's not one right option. Like you were saying, people love to say, like, pick this instead of that. And that doesn't really make any sense in this context. So I think when it comes to compostability, I I get, I have a lot of thoughts on that. And I just, I get a little irritated when I see those two. The straws really bug me, but the, the salad containers bug me even more because it's also contaminated. It's also like full of all of my, you know, greasy dressing or whatever it is that I'm getting. Mm-hmm. So doesn't, none of it makes sense. Nothing makes me more upset than when it says compostable and has a recycling symbol on it, because then it's like, whoa, okay. Like what, what do you, what do you want me to do? Like, I, I don't know what to do. And, and ultimately it's not recyclable because it's generally made from a PLA plastic and um, we don't have any domestic PLA recycling in the United States. If there isn't a volume, yes, it could be shipped out. But um, right now, the only plastics that are even potentially getting recycled are numbers one and two. They're the only two kinds of plastic that have any market value right now. So I challenge anyone listening to check the number on the bottom of your plastic, see what it is and, and throw it in the trash if it's a three through seven. And this is like an exercise that, that really hurts because I think we all get this like warm, fuzzy feeling from recycling. And we're like, yes, I'm like, you know, I use the plastic, but at least I'm recycling it. And it's like, we, we have to dispel that myth that recycling is actually good for the earth, that recycling is actually happening. The majority of recycling is a lie. Um, and is pushed by these companies so that that you do feel good about your consumption. Recycling is like my latest qualm that I need to talk to people about because it's also extremely expensive, first of all, to recycle. If it's happening, which it's probably not, the vast majority of recycling in America is actually landfill bound. But if it's happening, it is significantly more expensive to dispose of recycling than it is to send anything to a landfill. So from a city government perspective, a local government perspective, you don't really have any incentive to support recycling if it's going to cost you two, sometimes three times more, really, but to say it costs you six times more to recycle something over to send it to a landfill, there's no local government incentive to support recycling. And that's really, really unfortunate. And even landfills in general, it's expensive to maintain a landfill. That's also like my latest thing. People don't think about landfills enough. It's expensive to maintain. There's no federal standard for landfills. We have how to line them. We have RICRA standards, but we don't really have any federally maintained and mandated. They're also really far away from cities. Sometimes I think the average uh, sanitation truck travels a hundred miles each way to get to a landfill. I mean, waste is a problem that creates other problems. And we do not talk enough about these structural problems with landfills and recycling. And I mean, if that doesn't push you to use reusables more often than not, I mean, I don't know what to tell you. And then that brings into the problem of like people saying, oh, but I'm going to be using more water at home. What if I have to run my full dishwasher? What if I have to like, I can't stand the devil's advocates, but the biggest deal for me, I think, is talking about the recycling economy being an absolute myth. A hundred percent. And I think 
you know, what you brought up brings up another point around environmental justice. Where are these landfills being located? And the answer is um, next to poor and marginalized communities. And, you know, they can leach toxic waste. They have off-gassing, they are producing methane and the communities that are being affected by this the most are people of color and, and poor and low income communities. So it's, it, it really has a much bigger impact than, than we even begin to fathom when you throw something away. And I think it's, it's like the language that we've created around trash of throwing something away um, is, is really inherently the problem. There is no way. This is the one planet we have and someone has to deal with the trash, whether that be, you know, it going to a landfill or the kind of negative consequences once it ends up in a landfill or, you know, in this like faux recycling system. There's something kind of sobering to see a landfill. Like, I don't know what experience you have driving by landfills. I grew up in South Florida and there was one just outside of our county that they called Mount Trashmore. It was the highest point, the highest elevation in South Florida. Wow. And it was, I think as a child, like the first time that I thought I saw like a mountain or a hill and it was a bunch of trash. And that was the most sombering, like heartbreaking moment for me. I remember it so vividly to just like finally see this connection that like my stuff mm -hmm. has to go somewhere. hundred percent. I think two of my life goals are, one of them is to get visiting your local recycling and, and trash facilities baked into the education system. I think every kid should go to one of these facilities and see what this mythical land of a way is like. And then number two, I want to make junk mail illegal. So those are just like <laughs> two goals. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Run for office. Like you have my vote. That, Here we go. Yeah, that's, that's a great pretty. campaign to run on. That's the next steps is definitely getting uh, deeper into government work and um, you know, I think the change needs to happen in, in two places. We need this grounds up, um, movement, which is why I started final, which is creating community awareness, you know, giving people the tools they need to reduce their waste and getting everyone feeling like they can make a difference because I think it's, the problems are so big. It's really easy to feel like, like I don't matter. And my, my contribution doesn't matter, but it does. Um, and then second is top down. So changing policy, changing laws, holding companies accountable for the trash that they produce. Um, Coca-Cola needs to pay for the waste that they produce and be responsible for it. Because as you said, recycling is six times more expensive. So the taxpayers are paying twice for that Coca-Cola bottle. And, you know, I'm calling out Coca-Cola here, but it's, it's Coca-Cola, it's Nestle, it's Pepsi, it's Unilever. It's all of these massive, massive companies that are profiting billions off of us buying their trash and then us paying a second time for that trash to be dealt with. So, you know, all of our taxpayer dollars go towards maintaining landfills um, and, and the infrastructure around recycling. And, and yet Coca-Cola is just laughing all the way to the bank because they don't have to pay a dime for any of this um, waste cleanup or transportation. I have like a lot of thoughts around environmental justice and what Coca-Cola could be doing. Um, but Nestle gives me a lot of thoughts too, because there are a lot of issues even in their supply chain of just bottling water right out of the ground and taking over these low-income communities. And um, I mean, they say that about Fiji water too. I believe that 
Fiji water uses 90% of the water that's actually available for public drinking use in Fiji. So looking at these major companies, thinking about companies that are really in the business of producing plastic bottles, not really in the business of producing whatever goes into them and saying, okay, how do we hold them accountable? Not just from a consumer perspective, but the policy has to be there. Can we put a price on trash? Could we, there used to be a big economic push. I don't know how much uh, momentum there is in that policy efforts anymore, uh, but there used to be this big push of pricing trash and making people pay for the trash that gets picked up. And that of course creates this problem of like, okay, well, people will just start dumping it in the woods or dumping it on, you know, wherever it may be, dumping it into the water. But looking at these issues in a little bit more of a corporate lens, I think produces a whole other issue of transparency, like you were saying earlier, of paying and holding people accountable and and it has to be more than consumers. Absolutely. And in Europe, they actually do a lot of places have to pay for their trash. Um, and and it's, it's quite a bit more modern system there because there isn't as much space here in the United States. We're very, very privileged to have so much space. So like creating more and more landfills here is not nearly as big of a problem as it is in, in other places around the world. Yeah. I agree. I agree. And just to wrap it up, I have to say, I am so thankful that you are as passionate as you are with the platform that you have. You're really smart about the way you talk about these issues. And I love that you have kind of unpacked all of these issues on your own so thoroughly. You understand the issue from a lot of different angles, the issue being like the plastic crisis. And hopefully it's not just about the straws. Hopefully it's not just about encouraging people to be resourceful with their more sustainable business models. But I mean, there's a lot that needs to be done. I hate to say it, but it is. Absolutely. And I mean, there's, there's so many different ways that we can tackle these problems. And when we first launched all the haters are like, Oh, like, you know, you should be putting your efforts towards something that has a bigger impact. Cause like at the end of the day, like if we remove every single plastic straw from the world, it's not going to make a huge difference, but like, should we start somewhere? Should we start somewhere that is actually achievable? I think so. Um, and I think that, that, you know, as you said earlier, by giving people these small wins and, and making it easy for them to change these smaller aspects, these larger things become more achievable. And, and ultimately we all have things that we love and that we value. And those values are what motivate behavior change. So, you know, when I talk about these things, I, I do try and appeal to those different values, which is like, you know, your personal health, your, the, the health of the environment, the, you know, the future for, for your kids. Um, there's all of these different things that, that people care about. And ultimately this conversation can be tailored to anyone that, that exists because it affects every aspect of our lives. And so, you know, I, I hope that people take from this some inspiration to make these small changes, uh, knowing that we're all imperfect and that it's, it's okay to mess up, but, but to set higher standards and to always be pushing yourself a little bit harder to, to go and be above and beyond and, and to be the person in, in your community that people know as someone that, that, you know, is always trying to do better and inspire others around you. 
Thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you loved today's conversation with Emma Rose Cohen of Final. I will have her links down in the show notes. I will have my links down in the show notes. And I can't wait to hear what you think of the episode. Thanks so much for tuning in. Have a happy Earth Week. Stay vigilant. You know, greenwashing is out to get us. It's alive and well, unfortunately. But again, Earth Day should be every day. Thanks so much for being along for the ride. And I can't wait to talk to you soon. Bye. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.